Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And so when the Jewish people heard the Amalekites, I should say, when David and his 600 men heard of the Amalekites, this was a bloodthirsty people. This was a person who loves to kill, a people who love to kill the lame and the weak and the women and the children. And they knew that the prophet Samuel, when Samuel had anointed or commissioned Saul to be king over Israel, he told him specifically in 1 Samuel 15, one through three, Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came out from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep and camel and ass. They knew also that Saul had refused that command which he received at his anointing ceremony to be king and said, save the best. And they knew that the Amalekites then had been left infuriated by the Jewish people because he did destroy many of them. And these bloodthirsty people were left to go by Saul and they were infuriated. And now we have an angry, murderous people. So if the Amalekites loved to murder, then why didn't they kill the families of David and his men? Verse two of 1 Samuel 30 explains why. It explains that the Amalekites had a certain evil interest, and that's why their interest is really identified for us in verse two when it says, 1 Samuel 32, and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. They were interested in horribly abusing the women first before they killed them all. And David and his men, they didn't know that they hadn't killed anybody at this point. So the last two words of verse three tell us how the hearts of David and his men sank when they didn't find their families. That's what it says in 1 Samuel 33. And so David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives, all they knew is that this murderous, bloodthirsty people who have no fear of God, who love to murder and kill, had taken captives, their families, and they could only imagine what they were gonna do with them. And they knew that their city had been burned and their, take, their families were taken captive. And then verse four says that the men, David 600 and David, cried so loud and so long that they exhausted themselves to the point that they didn't have any more strength to cry anymore. They couldn't cry anymore. They had absolutely cried themselves out into a state of exhaustion. 
And verse five tells us the particular distress for David, it was two wives. In verse five, and David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Zezreelite, Jezreelitess and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And then if you notice verse six, it says, for Samuel 36, and David was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed, and the explanation comes. For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. It says that David at this point was greatly distressed. That's an interesting word. It's the word yatsar. We've seen it before. We saw it from Genesis 1 when it said, God formed man. He yatsared man out of the dust of the earth. We saw it in Isaiah where God said to Jacob, I formed you in the womb. It's the word of a potter who takes clay and then this clay, he squeezes it and puts it under pressure until he gets what he wants. But if that's one meaning, this other meaning of yatsar still has the root and the meaning of the squeezing and putting pressure on, and that's the word that's used here. David was greatly squeezed. He was greatly put under pressure. He was squeezed so hard by this trouble and put under so much pressure that his life just seemed to be becoming squeezed out of him. And we can imagine this pressure that David was under, so the point where he could, he might even say, I can't breathe. I'm under such pressure, such intense squeezing that it's actually keeping me from breathing. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you just, you're under so much pressure, you see yourself going, <laughs> short breaths, because you just feel so under pressure, it happens. And it says that, then we read on in that verse six where it says, and the people were grieved. That's not the word yetzar. That's a different word. That's the word marar. That word means they were bitter. You remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they were so thirsty and they came to that pool and they found that it was marar. They called it the pool of marar. It was the bitter. It was bitter. It was poisoned water. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was something similar to the Dead Sea, just so intensely contaminated with salt that it was bitter. Who knows? But it was bitter. And that's the word that they used here. They were greed. They were bitter. They were poisoned in their soul. There was no sweetness, it was only a bitterness. And the bitterness caused them to now blame and, and now criticize, and even to the point of wanting to kill. They were in that state of bitterness. They saw David now. David, he's our leader. David, he's the one who's responsible for all this. And so after they're crying and they're mourning and they didn't have any more strength to cry and mourn anymore, now they come to anger. Their emotions now switch from sadness to anger and blaming. After all, why didn't David, our leader, realize the danger of the Amalekites, especially since Saul had already pillaged them? Why didn't David realize that? After all, wasn't it David who caused us to desert our posts, our guard posts for our family, to go lead us on a folly of following with the Philistines only so that we could find that they refused us and sent us home? And because of this folly that our leader David led us into, he's to blame for why we don't have our wives and our families now. After all, we are 600 men 
what would have been so terrible if 200 of us would have stayed behind to guard our wives and our families? Why did we have to leave with all 600? Wasn't it our leader, David, who told us that we had to leave? And so not only they were asking themselves these questions, you can be sure that David also is asking himself these very same questions. So David is blaming himself. David is discouraging himself. The people are blaming David. The people are discouraging David, and David's there too. Now that's a picture of the kind of discouragement that we're talking about. There was no person to encourage David, not even himself. There was no person to encourage him. It's the perfect scenario to ask for our original question of what do we do when we are so discouraged, when we are so much in need of encouragement and there's no one to encourage us, there's everyone to discourage us, just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. There was no Egyptian to encourage the Jewish people. There were all Egyptians to discourage the Jewish people. David's wives might have encouraged him, but they were gone. They weren't there. There was no one to encourage David. What do you do when you're in that situation? David, what do you do, David, when you're in a situation like that and there's no one to encourage you? What did David do when he was there, when he was there with no one to encourage him, everyone discouraging him? What did David do? That's where 1 Samuel 36, those last words are so important. David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. See, the effect of what David did there when he encouraged himself in the Lord his God, and that is such a remarkable thing of what happened there, and how, why is it remarkable? Because of what happened afterward. Because see, what we see occurring is that after he encouraged himself in the Lord his God, he, we see David with finding the comfort that he needed, we see David finding this new strength, and he's also giving comfort and strength to his 600 men, and we see them getting up, and they're going with this new strength to go rescue, which they did. It was an amazing thing, and so, how was he able to rise up out of the discouragement? How was he able to find the new strength? How was he able to not only find the comfort and strength for himself, but then to encourage his men so that they could march off and, and destroy the Amalekites and recover their families? So first of all, we need to see that to encourage ourselves in the Lord, it's essential to not overlook the last two words of verse six, which is most commonly overlooked. It doesn't say that David encouraged himself in the Lord, period. It says David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Those are two very, very important words, not to be missed. Most people refer to David, what he's doing is here is he just, oh, David encouraged himself in the Lord. Huh. And they drop the last two words. That's to miss it all, because David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Only a person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as his God, as his personal God, has the ability to encourage himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to know him as your God because we know, because we know, when, when we know the Lord Jesus Christ is our God, we know very, very specific knowledge of him, not just as God, but as our God, we know when we know him as our God, we know that when there is darkness, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who we know and we hear his words when he spoke in John 8, 12 when he said, then spake Jesus again unto them saying, I am the light 
of the world. He, it's important that he didn't say they, he said he, because that means the individual. He that followeth me, that's individual to individual, individual believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, individual follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the individual Lord Jesus Christ is his God. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ who was the God who spoke in Genesis 1, 2 through 3 when he said, and the world was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We know who that God is. We who know, who have the Lord Jesus Christ as our God, know that it was the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, who said, let there be light and there was light. So we encourage ourselves in the Lord our God when we are in a great darkness and we intentionally know, we intentionally reflect on, we intentionally consider the fact that he specializes in bringing light into darkness. He specializes in bringing light into darkness. We know that, not just those, those are words, but we know that for personal experience. And we encourage ourselves in the Lord our God when we bring to the fore of our mind the experiences where we have seen him bring light into darkness. When we're confronted with death, death is a dark time, but we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ our God, who spoke in John eleven twenty five 25 when he said, and Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He said in John 6, 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him, or believeth into him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we encourage ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord our God, when we are confronted with death and we intentionally reflect, we intentionally bring to our knowledge the fact that he specializes in bringing life out of death, as he did in the case of Lazarus, as he did in the case of the boy that he raised from the dead, as he did in the case of every believer who he says, I will raise him from the dead. He doesn't say, I will have someone else. He says, do it. He says, I will raise him from the dead. Why does he say, I will raise him from the dead? Because he specializes in bringing life out of death. And when we bring that to our mind, when we intentionally reflect on it, intentionally consider it, and realize that's the Lord our God, we encourage ourselves in the Lord. When there is great trouble in our lives, we think that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who with that storm of Mark 4.39, where it says, and he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So we encourage ourselves in the Lord our God when we are confronted with trouble, the kind of trouble that threatens us like we were in a little boat in the midst of tree, in the midst of a lake where waves are coming over the side and we're in danger of sinking. When we're confronted with that measure, that degree of trouble, and we intentionally reflect on the fact that he specializes in bringing peace out of turmoil. He specializes in bringing peace out of trouble. And that's when we encourage ourselves in the Lord our God, when we use the muscle of intention 
to push through the darkness with the knowledge that our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, specializes in making good come out of evil. We encourage ourselves in the Lord when we use the muscle of intention to push out hopelessness, to push out doubt with the knowledge that he will as he does because he specializes in making a present trouble end well. We encourage ourselves in the Lord our God when we intentionally think that God's way, his normal way, is to bring a person down before he brings them up. We see that over and over again in the scriptures. And so when we see ourselves going down into the trouble, we encourage ourselves in the Lord our God, realizing he specializes in lifting those up and out. That's why David said in Psalm 56.3, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. That's what he said. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Trust is faith. And faith is not faith when you can see the outcome. Faith starts when you are at your wit's end. When you and I have come to our wit's end, faith starts. When so much trouble comes our way and we come to the end of being able to help ourselves, we don't see how we can help ourselves. We're at the end of helping ourselves. When we come to the end of what we can do for ourselves, we have just arrived at the beginning of what God can do for us. When we come to the end of what we can do for ourselves, we have arrived at the beginning of what God can do for us. So to summarize, what does it mean to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God? It means to remind ourselves and to declare to ourselves and to affirm in ourselves the character of God, who we know is the Lord our God, so we can say the character of our God, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, our God. As it says in Psalm 107, verses one and two, oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. The first person we need to say so to is ourselves. For we affirm that the Lord Jesus Christ is good. We affirm that. It's, he is good. He is powerful. He is in control of all things. And he is just plain simply good. Just that simple. He is good, and we declare that to ourselves. We affirm that he takes care of his people. People who serve him, the people who trust him, he takes care of them, even though they, we go through temporary times of trouble. But those temporary times have great value to us. Because in Romans 8, 28, it's a very important word when it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. From what we've been saying today, we could add one additional word to that verse, and that would be the word intentionally before the word know. We could say, and we intentionally know, as opposed to we passively know. 
we academically know. We remember having been taught in Sunday school, no. We know because we remember that that's Romans 8, 28. No, 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 when you put in that word intentionally no, everything changes because now you use the muscle of intention to know. You purposefully reflect on, you purposefully consider, we purposefully bring to our knowledge and say we intentionally, with the muscle of intention, pushing out the darkness of doubt, pushing out the hopelessness, and we say we intentionally know and affirm that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Is it easy to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God? No. That's why we're talking about the muscle of intention. It's not easy, but it's the only way to go on. And it's a powerful, powerful remedy against discouragement, a powerful one. Now, we come back to Exodus 1 and verse 11, we see how Pharaoh used the tactic of discouragement and the strategy to build those cities. Verse 10, he called it dealing wisely. Dealing wisely, why was it dealing wisely? Because it was effective. He knew how effective discouragement is, so does the devil, so does the enemy of our souls. Know how effective discouragement is. But in verse 12, it says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. So, what does this mean? This means that Pharaoh's strategy, Pharaoh's goal, Pharaoh's tactic didn't work. Why didn't it work? because he didn't reckon on, he didn't figure on the God of encouragement and the fact that God has given this great, this history here as an example to teach us that he is the God of encouragement. And when we set ourselves to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God, we will be successful because he wants us to. And that's the pattern that, that, that he's provided for us in this passage. The more we run into trouble, the more we run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we find out how great and good he is and the help that we need, and the more we come to know him personally. It's the times in the Bible we read, the times when people were really in the thick of it, they were really in time of their greatest trouble in their lives, that you might say the foxholes of their lives, that they found God. They knew, they learned about God, and that's why God would oftentimes refer to himself as, I am the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when he said, I'm the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, you would only think of, oh, Egypt. So many memories come back of all the troubles. It was one pseudos after another, one trouble after another. There was the Red Sea trouble, there was, there was the trouble of the, the smoking of the, the Sinai, there was the trouble... Oh, there was troubles and troubles, the trouble of no food, the trouble of et cetera, et cetera. And all the troubles, but he said, I am the Lord God that brought you out. And he wasn't just talking about that one little march to the Red Sea, but the whole process for the 30 years was the bringing out of them out of Egypt and bringing Egypt out of them. And he said, I'm the God that brought you out of that so that we'd remember, they would remember, I know who you are. You are the great I am, and that's not just philosophical, that's practical, and that's what he, did. Now, Pharaoh, he was down the wrong road. He was down the wrong road. Why? Because the wisdom, as we've mentioned, the wisdom and the understanding, understanding and the counsel of God, he had given to Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation, and Pharaoh decided to go against that, and what the Bible says in Proverbs 21.30 is, in a lesson for us, there's no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. And so what we've seen here today in our study is a marvelous passage of how God is so good, so faithful, so encouraging. 
He wants us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to do exactly the opposite of what Pharaoh did, and that is to encourage, to put heart into, to put passion into, into enhearten, encourage those all around us. And to realize that when there's nobody to encourage us in those times of life, when everybody is discouraging us, that's the time when God wants us to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God by using the muscle of intention to intentionally know the truth that God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of scripture and how it does teach us so much about you, how good you are, how encouraging you are. Help us, Lord, to strengthen our muscle of intentional knowledge to be able to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God and to encourage others as well. We thank you for teaching us today in Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051.